Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for our Old Testament series. Once again, I'm very excited. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are always happy and excited and thrilled to be diving into the Old Testament with our panel of Old Testament experts. And today, uh, Dr. Kapsner is going to be joining us uh, probably at the in about a 30 minutes. He's running a little late, but that does not mean we start or we wait for him Dr. Rebecca Ree is our guest. She is a Hebrew scholar and got her um, Ph.D. at Boston University. Did I say that right, or is it Boston College? Boston nope, University. Boston University, yeah. yep. Yeah, I'm trying to do this all from memory, which is uh, challenging for me at times. But we're very excited to hear about our special guest from the Old Testament today, Tamar. Now, am I saying that name right? It's actually Tamar. Tamar, okay, good. Yeah. So I'm already learning things. Now, is uh, how many Tamars are there in Scripture? Um, there are two that I know of. Um, this is the one that ends up being in the list of not forefathers, but four mothers to Jesus. Okay. So we will uh, learn about the, the lineage and the, um, the fact that this story is in Genesis 38 and very important in the uh, ancestry of Jesus Christ. So this is going to be an awesome, awesome art. Yeah. We should probably preface it by saying this could be sensitive in parts, and we want to be very uh, um, careful to not have things being said on this show that s- someone of younger ears may go, huh, what, what's that about, mommy or daddy? Uh, so we think this is probably a good conversation for teenagers and up. Does that sound about right, Rebecca? That sounds about right. Yeah. I don't say the word teenager very often either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I give you the opportunity today. <laughs> you, you taught me that word about five minutes ago. I didn't know what that word what, what that word meant. So, yes. Thank you. So Tamar, very interesting boy. She went through some hard times. I want to hear all about it. Let's get started. Yep. And just to let you know, at the 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 the, um, the 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 jewel at the end of all of our discussion is that she actually foreshadows Jesus. Cool. Um, not she's not just in his lineage, but she actually teaches us uh, some interesting things about Jesus and what and the work that he did for us. Okay. So, um, so last time I was on your show, I talked about the Shunammite woman in Second uh, Kings four. Yes. And we saw how she was such a powerful woman, both in terms of she was a wealthy woman, she had stature, but also she had a very powerful voice. And she was in this um, kind of back and forth with the prophet Elisha, and she was really um, able to rival him in terms of the power of her voice. And it's that back and forth between these two powerful voices that got her son resurrected in the end. But um, this week, we're going to look at another kind of obscure woman in the Hebrew Bible who occupies the opposite end of the spectrum. And so we talked about her. Her name is Tamar. Her story is found in Genesis 38. But unlike the Shunammite, she's poor and she is practically voiceless. And so the question I want to ask of Tamar is, 
What does she have when crisis lands at her doorstep? And what does she teach us when we don't feel well positioned to handle our problems? Mm -hmm. So um, because Tamar's story is not that well known, I'd like to read it to you like I did last time. And as you listen, I'm just telling you, it's all in the Bible. It's all there. (laughs) I'm not inserting anything that that wasn't there. As you listen, um, try to notice the ways that she is disadvantaged in her world, like what she has to endure. Why don't you be very sensitive to that as as I read. So um, Genesis 38. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her, so she conceived and bore a son, and he and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. Now Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to, to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, the wife of Judah died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. It was told to Tamar, behold, your father is going, father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was here by the road at Anaim? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat. You did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed, 
Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. While she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied, tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. So that's the story. Wow. Uh, yes. Love scripture, beautifully read. What a story. What a story. So mm. one, one of the things I want, like I said before, I wanted to kind of focus on um, what her disadvantages, what, the place that she's coming from. Uh, tomorrow. Okay. And there's two things. She's got it pretty tough, but two of her most difficult afflictions were, number one, her widowhood, which we learn at the very beginning of the story. Tamar experiences this meteoric fall from being um, the wife of Judah's firstborn son to a widow. Mm -hmm. You know, and as in that society, firstborn sons stood to inherit the family's wealth. So she was in a good position, and now as a widow, she's in the bottom rung of society. And she experiences her widowhood twice because both Er and Onan are executed by God for their evil. So that's the first thing is she's experiencing this widowhood. Um, and then the second thing, of course, is the sexual explo exploitation that she experiences. Um, according to the laws of Israel, Onan, who is Er's younger brother, was supposed to impregnate Tamar with children so that her husband's legacy would not be lost. And this is called leveret marriage. Mm -hmm. And if you want to look that up, you can find it in Deuteronomy 25 and Ruth 4. Um, so you're, you're the, the younger brother is supposed to continue his brother's legacy. So Judah sets Onan to this task, but Onan shirks his responsibility in the very worst way possible. He subjects Tamar to sex acts, but robs her of the seed that is hers by right. Um, and I want to hear, say a word here about what Onan is doing. The Hebrew verb waste is shachat, and it literally means to ruin or to destroy. And it's the verb that God uses when he executes all the evil people on the planet by means of the flood. So when Onan wastes his seed, He's literally destroying life. Like that is the, the, uh, the echo you should be hearing in your ears, destroying life. And on top of destroying that, he's destroying life in the line of Abraham, which is divinely blessed life. Because in Genesis 12, God says he's going to make Abraham into a great nation. And to your seed, I will give your, this land. Mm. So... It's just divinely blessed life that Onan is destroying. And even worse, he does all of this destruction of life in the shadows. So the assumption is made that it's all Tamar's fault. Wow. 
All right. So, well, yeah, Rebecca, I think we're going to take our, our first break. When I come okay. back, I do want to ask you if you know anything about what's going on in, in Onan's head, because why was he doing this? But we're going to continue either way with our study of Tamar. Our guest is Dr. Rebecca Ree, and you are listening to our Old Testament series. We're going to continue this for quite a while. We'll be right back. talking with Dr. Rebecca Reed today as we continue our discussions of Tamar, T-A-M-A-R. And this is a conversation which is probably not uh, suitable for the younger ears, but just want to give you a heads up. Teenagers and above would be uh, A-OK to hear this and possibly have a good conversation with uh, mom and dad. So right before the break, Rebecca, I was wondering if, if you have any insight as to why Onan did what he did. And so as a, um, a Hebrew scholar and one that um, focuses on narrative, we always want to be very careful. I think we can speculate and ask questions of the text all that we want. I think that's a good exercise. But when we're actually making statements about what the text is saying, we have to be very careful that we don't say more than the text actually says itself. And so in this case, the text says Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And that's why he does this destroying thing. And it comes up in the, if you're familiar with the Ruth story, when um, Ruth is, go- uh, when Boaz goes to the gates and he says to everybody, I want to take this piece of, redeem this piece of land. And with it comes this woman, Ruth, but there's a relative that's closer than me. And he asks that relative, do you want to you know, redeem the land? And the relative goes, mm, I don't think so, because if I, you know, if any children come out of Ruth, those, that, that, um, those children will compromise my own children's inheritance. So I don't want that, their inheritance to be lessened by any lev- uh, kids that come out of a leveret marriage. Mm. So I think that's what's happening with Onan. I think, you know, not, not every single child he has afterwards is going to be his brother's child. There will be ch- children that he has afterwards of his own, and he doesn't want their um, inheritance to be compromised by anything he has to give over to the children of Tamar. Rebecca, is this a little bit of blended family money tension? <laughs> I would say it's been there from the beginning. Yeah, I would say so too. Um, and there's been sibling rivalry from the beginning as well. So, mm-hmm. um, But we just know that he's evil, and, and God thought that what he did to Tamar was evil, and to the seed of Abraham was evil, so he took his life. It was a, it was a capital offense. So just to to tie a neat little knot on what we've talked about so far, I just want to say that Tamar's widow, her widowhood, her sexual exploitation, and her demonization can be summed up in one word, which is objectification. You know, she's not a subject in her own right, but an object. Mm-hmm. She's a, a pawn that's moved around and acted upon. She has no voice, no power, no prospects, just she, she's just a woman surrounded by so much death and destruction. Is it safe to say desperate people do desperate things? Um, uh, I think in the Hebrew Bible, they often do um, daring things, okay. let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm yeah, glad Jacob, I asked. Jacob, Thank you for Jacob, clarifying. 
yeah, Jacob, who's the father of Israel, he does some daring things too. So we'll get to, we'll actually get to that point. We want to talk about that specifically. Oh, good. So, um, so what does Tamar have if she doesn't have much that helps her prevail when she is so vulnerable? And I think that's an especially relevant question right now when so many of us may be feeling like we've been stripped of our securities, like be they financial, emotional, physical, social, spiritual, you know, like Tamar had that meteoric fall from being the wife of the firstborn. I think a lot of us may be feeling in the time of this pandemic that we've been stripped of our securities as well. And the one quality that I want to focus on with Tamar today is her perseverance. Um, Over time, she takes her terrible, terrible circumstances and turns them to her her advantage. And she uses those hardships as the raw material for her response to catastrophe. Um, And so let me explain, let me break that down a little bit. So when we look at Tamar's strategy to achieve her one goal, which is to obtain offspring from the house of Judah, we notice three negative experiences, which Tamar turns around for her good. So what's the first one, which is It's the nature of her ploy with Judah. It's a sexual ploy. Um, Now, as I said earlier, Tamar knows what it's like to be used sexually and denied her rights. This time, when she interacts with Judah, she's going to turn the tables and she's going to offer herself as a sexual object, but in a way where she is sure to get her due. In fact, the first time we ever hear Tamar and Judah talk to each other in the story, it's this like rapid fire haggling of what Judah will give his daughter-in-law if she allows him to have sex with her. So you hear this, what will you give me? I'll give you a goat. How can I be sure you're going to give it to me? I'll give you a pledge. You know, this is back and forth. And I just want to put in there that when she asks him for his, his rod, his staff, his cord, and his signet ring, it, in terms of risk, this is the equivalent of saying, I want you to hand over your driver's license and credit cards to me. <laughs> and, no. then we have a, and then we have a deal. <laughs> so it's, you know, kind of an, an impulsive, a very impulsive, risky um, act on Judah's part to just hand these things over. And that's why it's so serious when he can't get them back mm-hmm. um, from her. And Rebecca, so, if, I, if I could just interject for a second, sure. I want to back up uh, 30 seconds ago when you said when he, when Judah was speaking to his daughter-in-law at the time, he didn't know that was his daughter-in-law. Yep, and the text repeats that twice. Okay. He has no, she's bailed. She's bailed her face. Right, okay, thank you for that. So he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and then, so that that's the first way is that she, she, you know, this is the nature. She's been acted upon sexually, and so that's the nature of the ploy that she tries. It's, it's sexual in nature, but to her advantage. Um, second, the, the second way Tamar turns the table is through manipulation of perceptions. So in the first part of the story, the men in Tamar's life do not perceive her correctly as she struggles to conceive a child. So Onan sees her as a nobody that he can abuse. Judah sees her as a threat to completely remove from his view through exile. Remember, he sends her off to her father's house. He's like, I'm not letting you have my third kid. You're the, you're the problem, right? So in some, Tom, Tamar knows what it's like to be degraded, and to be made invisible. And if we look at Tamar's gambit with Judah, we see that once again, this resourceful woman uses her degradation 
and her invisibility to turn the tables on her target. So first, she makes herself invisible, and you just said it, Bill, by putting on a veil so Judah cannot see who she is. And that's critical to her plan because he would never otherwise give her the sought-after seed that she's looking for, right? She, mm-hmm. He would never take the bait. And second, in terms of the degradation she has suffered, Tamar chooses a disguise that will serve her own ends. She lowers herself even further from a widow in her father's house to a harlot so that Judah's going to take that bait. So again, she takes this degradation and this invisibility and she just turns the table and uses it as raw material for her ploy. Um, and it's interesting because in the Hebrew, if you, and when you pick this up in the Hebrew, when Tamar is veiled and disguised, um, the text says she positions herself at a, as, at a gate called Anaim because she knows that's where Judah will pass by. And Anaim happens to mean eyes. So Tamar is sitting at the gate of eyes. And it's like the storyteller is underscoring that this time, She's the one that's going to control how people lay eyes on her. She, her self-imposed invisibility and degradation is going to serve her own end. So let's just back up for a minute and remind ourselves where we are in our reading of Tamar's like bold and clever attempts to achieve her fortunes. So number one, she turns her experience of sexual exploitation into an opportunity to have advantageous sex. Two, she turns her experience of being misperceived into an opportunity to manipulate others' perceptions of her. Um, And now I want to give you the third one, which is um, Tamar totally upends the harmful judgments that are made against her. And there are mainly two of them that she has to reverse and then redeploy. So on a social level, Onan judges Tamar as unworthy of his seed, and Judah judges her as unworthy of Shelah's seed. So whatever Tamar does in response to show, you know, in response has to show that she is, in fact, a woman of worth, deserving of that Abrahamic seed. And on a legal level, there's a judgment leveled against Tamar that she has committed the mortal sin of harlotry. And when the family gossip reaches Judah's ear that his former daughter-in-law is unlawfully pregnant, mm-hmm. he just he just summarily says, take her out and, and burn her. It's actually just two words in the Hebrew. That's so disturbing because she's pregnant, too. Right. So there's three lives on the, yep. on the line. And he has no problem, you know, sending her away and not taking responsibility, like, as a father-in-law when he, you know, when he wants to exile her um, and protect his third son. But then all of a sudden when she's pregnant, he steps into the role of father-in-law again and just says, okay, we'll just burn her. Yeah. He's kind of like, it's, it's disturbing what his behavior is Rebecca, here. Rebecca, I don't like breaks, especially in yep. this story, but boy, <laughs> I guess we have to take another one, okay. according to Rosie, our producer. So let me uh, just step aside. We'll come back with Dr. Rebecca Ree as we continue to discuss Tamar. Show with Bill Arno, Drive Time, Drive Time. 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Wow, we are having an amazing hour with Dr. Rebecca Ree as we're discussing Tamar and uh, Dr. Peter Capster and I are always so thrilled when we get a chance to talk to Rebecca. And as a matter of fact, Peter's back in studio. Peter, welcome. Thank you. I've been hearing that this first half an hour is absolutely off the hook. I didn't even know how to pronounce the name. I had Tamar from the time I was little. Yeah, me too. But it's Tamar. It's Tamar, yeah. Yeah, yeah, We have a lot lot to learn. So much to learn. All right, Rebecca, let's pick up. Okay, so um, we were talking about these amazing reversals that Tamar is involved in, that um, the negative experiences that she has in her life, she manages to use that as the raw material for reversing what's hap- going to happen with the rest of her life. So um, the third the third and last one I wanted to talk about where she has these judgments made against her. We talked about that. One is that um, she's judged as unworthy of Abraham's seed. And she's also, in a legal sense, um, judged as having committed a capital crime worthy of um, death, which is the harlotry. And so literally she has to do something that's going to reverse these judgments made against her. And that's exactly what she ends up doing, which, and so elegantly, like she's literally being led to the wood pile to be burned. And she produces Judah's staff and his cord and his signet ring, which we said are kind of like the driver's license and credit cards that are, you know, his identification and his very valuable. And she says, you know, please identify these things. And what can Judah do? You know, after all these months of wondering what the heck happened to the temple prostitute and how, you know, how I never got to collect payment and all this stuff. Um, In the presence of all the family, he not only exonerates Tamar, but he implicates himself, which is really important because you have to have, you know, make clear who the guilty party is. He says, she is more righteous than I because I did not give her my son. Um, And noticeably, the text specifies that he never has sex with her again, which is a further way of saying this was misguided. Like, this is not the way to go. You know, these these children are in the uh, in the line of Abraham, but this is where it stops for Judah and Tamar. Right. So the verdict is Tamar is innocent. Judah is guilty. uh, Case closed. But what is important to note, and I'm sure that we're all kind of asking this because this is such like a, a gripping and almost salacious story as we're listening to it is. Whenever we um, have um, a a person in the Bible who's like acting, quote unquote, outside the lines, you know, however outside the lines they may seem to us, um, Tamar is doing this with one purpose in mind, which is gaining the offspring that she's due. You know, she's using, she's keeping her eye on the prize. And so we we were talking about uh, desperate times bringing daring measures. And so as a literary critic of the Bible, one of the questions that always comes up for me when I'm dealing with like wily characters, you know, borderline behavior, where my question is, where is God in all of this? You know, where does the text put God? Um, And at first in this story, we're privileged as readers because we know more than the characters do, right? The 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 narrator clearly tells us that it's God who executes Er and Onan for their respective evils. Um, but then God seems to recede into the background, and I believe he's still there, but we have to search for him a bit harder in the tumultuous dynamics of the story. And isn't that kind of the same today in terms of spotting God at work 
behind the scenes and the tumultuous circumstances that we have. Um, so we have some things to learn here. And I think there's three places, major places, where I see God at work behind the scenes in this story. And first and foremost is Tamar's one-and-done successful pregnancy. I mean, God is still advocating for this woman who has to resort to extreme measures to obtain offspring after many, many years of childlessness. She has been waiting a long time to receive her due. And I just think the fact that they have this one encounter and she gets pregnant and, you know, that's God. That's God, like, keeping that promise to the covenant, with the covenant with Abraham. Um, second, God is in the mouth of Judah when Judah says, Tamar is more righteous than I. Um, it reminds me of the time that when Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood, he not only heals her physically, but he has to heal her socially because she's an outcast. So in all three gospel accounts, I looked it up. He says before the crowd, daughter, your faith has made you well. And I think some of that's going on here when, Demar, um, when Judah exonerates Tamar and implicates himself. He's like restoring her socially within the family. And finally, I, I see God at work in the births of Perez and Zerah. Um, and for this next point, I have to give credit um, to my Hebrew teacher, Vicki Hoffer, because way back, and she, she's the one that noticed it, and you, it's something that comes out in the original Hebrew text that you can't hear as a reader of the English, which is way back in Genesis 38, we find Jacob running away from his brother Esau, right? And he has a dream that's famously known as Jacob's Ladder, where he sees the angels going up and down on a ladder. You know, we, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And in that dream, the God, of, the God of Jacob's fathers makes a promise, and he says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Now, the word for the, the Hebrew verb for spread abroad, which it's more accurately like you shall burst forth, that verb is parat. Mm -hmm. And when Tamar finally has those twins, we note that the firstborn's name, and he's firstborn by some struggle. You know, we think, you think the brother's going to come out first, but no. His name is, it's, it looks like Perez in the English, but it's actually Padets. So Padets and Padats, it's the same verb. It's the same root word. Yeah. God's covenant spoken to Jacob coming out in human flesh with Tamar. Yeah, I knew that birth. Peter didn't, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> so, you know, we're seeing that, that, that just auspicious, auspicious case of bursting forth of the Abrahamic seed, and it brings double life, and in that surprise birth order. So, you know, God is going to do what God is going to do, and human beings just need to be open to his um, interventions and to pursue his presence in any way possible. So if I step back from the Tamar story as a whole, I want to ask, you know, how, how are my circumstances like hers and how might my solutions be like hers? And, you know, we said this before during this time of the pandemic, things are very precarious for Tamar. And we might find that life keeps slamming us with one negative thing after another that we did not bring down on ourselves. 
um, we might be stripped down. And we said this before, financially, relationally, logistically, in terms of how little control we have over our circumstances. And like tomorrow, we might be surrounded by death and destruction. Um, people who have lost their health or even their lives. Um, and we may feel like Job, just overrun with one bad thing after another. Um, and what Tamar's perseverance teaches us, and here is a little motto I came up with, and I've been saying it in my own head a lot this week, which is, you know, yes, we have to acknowledge every single one of these cold, hard truths, but we also have to realize that we serve a God who uses human calamity like, like heavenly clay. So in his hands, human or human catastrophe, you could say, becomes heavenly clay. Um, when we refuse to give up, when we offer up to him the suffering that's on our plates, he can turn the tables just like Tamar turned the tables. And Romans 8.32 says he can turn it for the good. Um, and Tamar, I love her because she is so resilient. You know, she takes her life experiences, life experiences that may have rendered other people bitter or irreparably broken, and she's proactive about them. You know, it's like Jesus receiving, you know, the five loaves and two fish, offering it up to the Father, breaking it, and feeding everyone so there's actually leftovers, you know. And when I see those leftovers, I think of those double twins, that double life. It's like, wow, that's double what I expected, you know. Um, and something else I want to point out, which is sight is very important in this story, who sees what and how. And it's vital to point out that I think Tamar refuses to see herself as a victim. No, long, uh, you know, no matter how long she, this, her saga drags on or how dangerous the place it takes her. I mean, it literally leads, leads her to the stake where she's going to be burned. Um, and I want to qualify that scripture tells us that God wants truth in our innermost selves, you know, that the truth may be that you have been badly victimized. You may have been very badly beaten by your circumstances. So yes, you do have to, like Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. You do have to cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you, like First Peter says. Um, you know, we have to go to confession and prayer and maybe find a safe person to talk to and say the truth of the bad things that are happening to us, but let's not let it end there. You know, like Tamar, let's be persevering and let's, let's give God room to respond. Let's be like Tamar waiting at that gate of the eyes, waiting intently for Judah to come, gathering Judah's driver's license and credit cards for safekeeping against the day of reckoning that she knew that it was going to come. And for us, when we present God's promises back to him, we're acting like Tamar with those identifying markers of Judah. We're saying, this is who you are, and I'm holding you to it. You said you would never leave me or forsake me. You said I can do all things through you who strengthen me. You said that nothing can separate me from your love. Now prove that I haven't taken these seeds of truth into myself in vain. You know, that, that that double life is going to come from these things. It's going to burst forth in, from me. Um, and you, you can pray. You know, I'm not telling you how to respond, God. I'm just insisting with all due respect that you do respond. Um, and before we leave tomorrow, I kind of wanted to mention one other thing. If you look up Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1, 
you will see that she is the very first woman mentioned in that list of progenitors. You know, foreigner and harlot player that she is, she's right there. And she ultimately gives rise to the one who knows what it's like to start off in a high place, empty himself of divine privilege, be stripped down to a low place, and endure all manner of affliction in order to achieve his one goal, which is offspring, which is us, the seed of Abraham, who are born again and burst forth into the kingdom of God because the Messiah's perseverance on, on his mission. Wow. So, wow. so if you have, you know, if you're in a hard place, hang on like Tamar did, you know, get your support, keep your eyes open um, because God's going to make good on those promises that you bring to him. Yeah, it's fantastic. All right, Rebecca, we're going to uh, come back and learn a little bit more about Tamar. You uh, are listening to our, our Old Testament series with Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are so glad to be hosting Dr. Rebecca Ree. You can go to her website to learn more about her. It's RebeccaRee.net, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E.net. with Dr. Rebecca Ree as we are talking about Tamar today. You may have been calling her Tamar your whole life, but I guess the pr- proper pronunciation is Tamar. And yep. Peter, you have to say at least four sentences to get paid. <laughs> I do indeed. <laughs> I just, I, and just listening to the story, I, as Rebecca was walking through it again and tracing sort of forwards and backwards within the biblical text, I was reminded once again that the Bible's not functioning on the level of a series of independent stories that have been jammed together for sort of our personal morality. There's all of these themes working through all of them, all the way to the point that she's part of the genealogy of Jesus in, in Matthew 1 and the bursting forth and all of these themes, stuff that I was not aware of. Yeah, really good. Great stuff. So, Rebecca, we're going to talk now about uh, Tamar and, and the connection to Jesus. Well, I think, you know, I mentioned it a little bit is the fact that he knows what it's like to have that meteoric fall. Mm. You know, in his case, it was... Um, it was chosen. You know, I think I can't remember is it Philippians where it talks about, he did not uh, uh, equate um, his equate, uh, his likeness to God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Like in his case, he decided to empty himself and come down and be one of us and to experience death, even death on a cross. Um, but, but, and he, he has his one goal in mind, just like she did, which is I want those offspring. I want those, you know, those children of mine. I want to win those children for my father. Um, and so he is, is just as persevering and can be um, very wily and very strategic in his moves. And I don't think he ever saw himself as a victim. Even in his last moments when he's, you know, before Pilate and he's being abused by the Romans, he, he's still saying, you wouldn't be able to do any of this unless my father allowed you. Um, so I, I see a lot of her uh, winsome, wily, um, persevering, and um, strategic spirit. And he, they're both very creative, I think, in the end, too. Very resilient. 
I like that. Yes. <laughs> so what's not what's not to like? <laughs> no, I mean, it's absolutely true. It's it's uh, stunning, and you were so right. He he went to the cross. Uh, he was not a victim at all. He was there to serve the mission of his father and the redemption of the world. So yeah, it was it was. Um, I, I love that he will never leave us or forsake us as well. And I think Rebecca too, in some of these stories, when people have these experiences of emptying, uh, there's a strength that grows and, and sort of a stature within them. You, you talk about what he was like, maybe even on the cross. His, Jesus's ability to turn and forgive. I've always pictured that as he wasn't doing that through gritted teeth. He was doing that because he still was able to pour out something to the people around him, even while he is suffering in, in these eternally significant kinds of ways that he is. But there's a, there's a strength of character that grows in our own suffering that I think I see in both those stories. Yes. And, and like Tamar, Jesus has things that he has to mediate all the time. Like when he's teaching, he's always mediating others' perceptions of him because he's like teaching the common people, right? But then he's got the religious leaders that are trying to catch him here and trip him up over there. And so he's got to mediate their their perceptions of him. And he's also mediating people's judgments of him all the time. So, you know, he's got to deal with that just the way she did. She did. So he's got kind of it's like, like her as she kind of moves through her social network. Jesus is moving through, you know, when his ministry began, he's moving through these swaths of people and having to sort of deal with each group and um, what he means and is going to mean to each group. Even up to the end, as you said, when he was on the cross, yes. Mm -hmm. So this story, and Peter and I were chatting during the break, that there must be some basic misunderstanding that a lot of Bible students have, because like Peter had mentioned during the break, you don't hear a lot of people naming their kids Tamar. (laughs) Well, it means literally date palm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that might be why. That's another thing you and I knew, right? Right off the cuff, right? Of course we knew that. Yeah, of course we knew that. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's a pleasant, it's a pleasant name. Yeah. I mean, have we had kind of a misunderstanding about her? In what way? Well, that we think that we look at the way she chose to be for some manipulating Judah, Mm -hmm. Mm. conniving maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, you could say he manipulated her first. Oh, absolutely. No, he's he's not not guilty. Right. And he does. Yeah. And that's the whole point of his his statement in the story of, um, you know, exonerating her. But I would say... The best way to think about Tamar, and you, again, it's going through the story with a fine-tooth comb and making sure, because the story is capable, the storyteller is capable of outright condemning a person, like he did Aaron Onan in the beginning. Now, what Aaron was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord took his life. He has no problem saying when someone's being evil and when they're not. And I don't see any such statements being explicitly stated about Tamar anywhere in the story. Um, and, you know, we talked about the other ways that she's actually exonerated explicitly in the story. Um, and then I think you just have to be very careful um, when you when you look at a character, not to uh, whether that person, like in the Jacob story, the blessing of God comes on him also through, you know, the 12 tribes. And, you know, he's very wily and his some of his behaviors also uh, questionable. And my, my response to that is they work with what they have. 
Mm. Tamar looks in her, I, you know, I kept picturing her as having kind of like this basket strung over her arms, you know, like a basket you might go to market, market with. And she looks in that basket and what has she got in there? It's not good. You know, life has not dealt her a good hand. She uses whatever's in that basket. Um, and it's raw material, it's negative, it's negative experiences, but she uses what she uses. And I don't think God condemns her. I don't think the text condemns her. I think the text um, upholds her for not giving up and using what she has. Rebecca, one of the things I'm learning from this hour is that God's purpose is always accomplished. And in this case, it is accomplished despite man's unrighteous behavior. Well, there's always two levels when you read Hebrew narrative, which is you read what's in front of you and what's happening sort of on the the bare human level, you know, the plain sense of, well, this person went there and did that and such and such happened. But then there's this, I don't want to say subtext because that sounds like it's below the text when it's actually, when you think about it, the overarching narrative um, that's that's, uh, governing the text, which is the divine text you know, the divine narrative that's happening on top and how where the points converge is always where it's really interesting. Um, so, yes, God's purposes are always being worked out in one way or another. And I think it, the, the fact that this story ends with the, the reversal of who gets to be firstborn, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do. And one of the most dramatic things is, this this story, Genesis 38, is smack in the middle of the Joseph story. So Genesis 37 is Joseph being, you know, telling his dreams, his brothers get angry, sell him into slavery, he gets carted off to Egypt, right? That's where it ends. And then this Judah story comes in, Judah and Tamar. And later in the story with Joseph, when he's this mighty, you know, um, governor of Egypt and his brothers don't know him and he, he's putting them through awful tests and, you know, making them saying, you better produce Benjamin and, you know, or else I'm going to keep you all as slaves. Um, It's Judah that steps up and Judah makes this impassioned speech saying, you know, don't take Benjamin from our father. He is going to die. If you do that, instead, take me, I will stand in as your slave, take me. And it's, you totally know that Judah is the one that's acting as advocate because he's learned something from Tamar. He's learned how to take responsibility. He was the one that decided in the beginning, oh, let's sell him into slavery. But by the end of the Joseph story, he's the one standing up for Benjamin and protecting his father's life. And it's never explicitly stated, but you know it's connected to this Genesis 38 story. It has changed him. Yeah, it just boy, when you're telling the story, isn't about the wiliness of Jacob and what happened with Judah, and <clears throat> thinking about the disciples too, and and just it seems like so often the people in the text are way more of rabble than we than we might think on first blush. There's just there's a lot going on, and yet God continues to redemptively work through them despite all of that. Right. Well, we we never get away from the fact that we are vessels of clay. We don't. Sometimes we we forget we are not wisps of light. <laughs> <laughs> We're vessels of clay, you know, and I like the earthy stories. Yeah, I was thinking about Judah throughout this hour, and I have to say my emotions are all over the map when he wanted her burned as she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. 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 I, I, I have to tell you, my blood pressure went up m- many points. <laughs> yes. I instantly wanted to go punch him. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. and it's funny because um, I'm not a Levitical scholar, so I don't really know about law, but... 
I would love somebody who does to go through, um, you know, Leviticus and say, is that exceed what's supposed to happen, mm-hmm. you know, in that yeah. situation? Is he like taking liberties with how, you know, he seems to do it in a very kind of off the cuff kind of way. Well, just burn her then. Oh, um, but is he going beyond what's actually, you know, legislated? Mm. That's what I would like to know. Mm-hmm. You look at the genealogy of Jesus, and it is a little messy at times. <laughs> yep. This would be one of the contributing factors of, to the messiness. There's three women. There is Tamar, mm-hmm. and then there's Rahab, mm-hmm. and then there is, she's merely refute, re, referred to as the wife of Uriah. Yeah. Yeah. There's another name you didn't know you were pronouncing wrong this whole time, Peter. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm over two thus far. <laughs> yeah. Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been a fantastic hour. We've loved uh, you being on the show once again. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. I, I love talking about Tamar. Yeah. Rebecca Ree has been our guest. You can go to uh, RebeccaRee.net, R-H-E-E. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much for spending time with me and all of my spectacular guests. It's been wonderful. I look forward to spending time with you tomorrow. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.